Amen. Okay. Praise the Lord. We want to kiss the sun. You know, in order to kiss the sun, you first have to see the sun. So uh, we want to spend the whole weekend seeing Christ and seeing the issue of Christ, which is the church. Uh, you all should have a packet. Uh, how about we all read the title on the front cover of your packet? Go. Christ and the church revealed and experienced in Colossians. Christ and the church revealed and experienced. Uh, well, we're going to dive right in tonight. Um, there may be some trickling in from other localities uh, coming from a distance, but that's okay. Um, they can just find a seat when they get here. So we're going to spend the weekend in this little book of Colossians. And you may have heard the title of the conference before you came and even read the four chapters of Colossians. Uh, maybe you read it on the way. And uh, the first thing we want to mention is that the book of Colossians is perhaps the highest revelation of Christ in the whole New Testament. The highest revelation of Christ. Uh, you just consider, I, I jotted down some of the high utterances in this book. Um, Christ is the portion of the saints. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of creation. All things came into being through him. All things cohere in him. He's the head of the body. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. All the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell in him bodily. All things have been reconciled to God through Christ. He's the mystery of God. And I'm sure there's a lot more. I just picked these. These are very high utterances concerning Christ that you may not find anywhere else in the Bible. But we hope tonight and tomorrow morning we're going to see this wonderful Christ to such a degree. Um, just in the way of background, this was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae. And uh, the city of Colossae, it was in present-day Turkey. And it's important to know that because that was, you could say, a crossroads between the Jewish and the Greek cultures. Okay, the Jewish and the Greek cultures. And uh, one of the problems, and this is part of the background of this epistle, one of the problems in Colossae is that in the church in Colossae, there was an invasion, an invasion of culture, an invasion of philosophy, an invasion of asceticism, an invasion of mysticism. Not necessarily bad things. You might think, well, what's wrong with philosophy? Philosophy might be one of the highest things in human civilization. But the things that were creeping into the church, and here's the main point I want you to take away, they were becoming a replacement of Christ. A replacement of Christ. Now, if something was coming into the church that was obviously negative, gambling, prostitution, uh, drinking, these kind of things, we, we would recognize them right away and we would push them out. But these things were high. 
They were refined. They were cultured. Um, and that's why it was so subtle. Creeping in, invading the church in Colossae and becoming a replacement of Christ. So the Apostle Paul here, he wants to uh, help the brothers and sisters in Colossae see the supreme worth of Christ. And that Christ must be the only content of the church. Christ must be the only content of the church. You know, the church is a pure product out of Christ. The picture of Christ in the church in the Old Testament is Adam and Eve, right? And uh, we know from Romans 5.14 that Adam was a type of Christ. And God put Adam to sleep and took a rib out of his side and built Eve from the rib. And when Adam woke up, he said, now it is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman because she has come out of man. She is comparable to me, comparable to Adam. She was a pure product out of Adam. Well, Adam was a type of Christ. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 that Eve was a type of the church. And in the same way, God put Christ to sleep on the cross. And out of his side came something for the producing of the church. Right, Julian? Out of his side came blood and water. The blood of Christ is for our redemption to cleanse away all the dirt, all the sin, everything negative that would prevent the holy God from coming in. And then the water, the flowing water, signifies the spirit of life that got released on the cross. And so now we can receive the very life of God and become part of this pure product out of Christ. The church, it's so precious to the Lord. It's so dear to Him. And for anything to come in, to allow anything to come in and invade the church and replace Christ, oh, we cannot tolerate that, right? I was, when I was getting into this, I was considering some scriptures about how precious the church is to the Lord. And I was thinking of Matthew 13. You know, in Matthew 13, uh, the Lord is speaking there concerning the kingdom of the heavens and what it's like. And by the way, that phrase, the kingdom of the heavens, is used interchangeably with the word church in the New Testament. The church is the kingdom of the heavens. It's the reality of the kingdom of the heavens. Well, when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of the heavens in Matthew 13, verse 45, he says again, the kingdom of the heavens is like a merchant seeking fine pearls and finding one pearl of great value. He went and sold all that he had and bought it. That's how precious the church is to the Lord. It's like a fine pearl that's of great value, that he would just go and sell everything that he had. That's, he went to the cross and poured out his only life for us, for the church. Another one in uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul is speaking there to the, the brothers in the church in Ephesus. And he says, shepherd the church of God, which he, which God obtained through his own blood. So dear, so precious, the church. So 
You can imagine the Apostle Paul who raised up that church, how concerned he was that something was invading the church to replace Christ, to replace what should be the only content of the church, which is Christ. And, uh, you know, if, if God loves the church that much, you can imagine how much Satan hates the church. And Satan wants to destroy the church. He wants to damage the church, to corrupt the church. In Matthew 16, 17, the Lord said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That implies, Isaac, that the gates of hell are trying to prevail. But they shall not. Praise the Lord. They shall not prevail. Two kingdoms are clashing. There's the kingdom of the heavens and there's the kingdom of darkness clashing. But the gates of hell shall not prevail. Satan wants to attack the church. He wants to destroy the church. And one of his strategies, he has a lot of strategies, but one of his strategies is to bring into the church something other than Christ. Something as a substitute for Christ. Like we see in, Col in Colossae, wisdom, philosophy, culture, fine things, good things, but they can replace Christ. Okay, well that's on the background side. Now, we want to make a little turn here and look at the process of Christ. You see the subtitle there for message one? It says, the revelation of Christ in his process. The revelation of Christ in his process. So we'll spend some time tonight and also tomorrow morning to see the process of Christ in Colossians. Now, the process of Christ is actually the central line of the entire Bible. It's the central line. And so that means, regardless of what book we're reading, regardless of what book we're studying in the Bible, everything ties in to this process of Christ. The New Testament word for this process is God's economy. That's the word Paul uses when he writes to Timothy. He exhorted Timothy to charge certain ones in Ephesus not to teach different things. Endless genealogies and myths and things that produce questionings. But only teach God's economy, which is in faith. God's economy is his administrative arrangement to be able to dispense himself into man to produce for himself a counterpart that matches him. And that arrangement involves a number of processes. It involves uh, a number of steps that God took. God, who has dwelt alone in unapproachable light, took some steps to be able to reach us and dispense himself into us to produce the church, to be the counterpart of Christ. And so... Because this is the central line of the Bible, we should be able to see this in pretty much any book in the Bible. Well, we're going to see it from Colossians tonight. And so every point on this page, every Roman numeral, begins with a verse from Colossians. And then there's some other verses to kind of supplement and add some, some depth to it. But um, the first point here, Roman numeral 1, the mystery of God. I'm going to diagram this process on the board, and some of you may have seen this before, 
But with this diagram, we always start with God. And we kind of put a, like a barrier around him there. Because, you know, the, the Bible says he dwells in unapproachable light. Whom no man has seen nor can see. This is God. And in Colossians chapter 2, you have the verses there, 2 and 3. It says, the mystery of God, Christ. God is a mystery. He's here in the heavens. Mysterious. You can circle that word mystery. Then the next verse says, In whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. And you can circle that word hidden. Mysterious. Hidden. And then uh, we have 1 Timothy 6.16 here. How about we all read this together? Go. Who alone has immortality? Dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and eternal might. Amen. Here you can circle that phrase, whom no man has seen nor can see. Well, in Colossians, we're starting with God, but the adjective that we want to, you to pick up for God here is invisible. He's mysterious, he's hidden, no man can see him, he dwells in unapproachable light, and in chapter 1, verse 15, which is not under this point, it's under the next point, Roman numeral 2, it says, who is the image of the invisible God? God is invisible. So listen, college students, you're there in your classroom listening to professors speak all kinds of things. Don't believe just any kind of strange thing you might hear about God and who he is and what he looks like because God is invisible. In Isaiah 40, verse 18, it says, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? He is incomparable. There's nothing comparable to God. Nothing matches him. Nothing looks like him. So what are you going to draw? What are you going to do? What are you going to talk about? He's incomparable. He's the invisible God. You know, I mentioned the background of Colossians. There was a lot of higher learning. There was a lot of culture, a lot of philosophy that is fighting against the knowledge of God. So Paul uses this phrase, the mystery of God, which is Christ. He's mysterious. Today also, there's a lot of philosophy, a lot of philosophical talk, a lot of intellectual stimulation, uh, and so forth. And you can talk about God, you can philosophize about God, but you can never talk and think and philosophize yourself into seeing the invisible God. Because God is a mystery. But if you don't grasp that he's a mystery, then you'll never open up your spirit to substantiate this mysterious, invisible God. Okay, this is a key point. A key point. 
If we want to have God revealed to us as a revelation, and, and by the way, the verse says, uh, the mystery of God, Christ. That means if we want to have Christ revealed to us as a revelation, we need to exercise our spirit. We need to open our spirit. You can't think your way into this. You can't philosophize about it. You have to open your spirit. And, um, you know, if you think he can be philosophized, then you might go to a place of higher learning and uh, exercise your mind to cogitate and consider. But the mysterious and invisible God can only be apprehended with our spirit. So, what do we need to do? We need to do what the Lord told Peter, right? Peter, we have the verse here in Matthew 16. Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in the heavens. It was a revelation from the Father. And, and brothers and sisters, tonight, we need to, this needs to be our prayer. Father, grant me a spirit of wisdom and revelation that I could see the Christ, that I could see your Christ. The one in whom you delight. I want to see Christ. I want to see him tonight from the book of Colossians. We're here to get Christ. I'm here to get Christ. Not, not mere knowledge. We don't want to go home with just mere knowledge. We want to get Christ. Okay, now. This process continues. And at a certain point in time, God... Um, he left that realm. He laid aside his glory, what he was, and he became a man like you and me. The Bible says God became flesh, and the word for that is incarnation. You know, that word incarnation is not in the Bible, but the fact of incarnation is there. Uh, in, in the book of Colossians, we don't have the word incarnation nor do we have the word human living. But these two words, which, which we use for these processes of incarnation and human living, are summed up in this one word under Roman numeral 2, the image of God. Image. This I is for image. It doesn't use the word incarnation, but image, the image of God. And, and listen, through these two processes of incarnation and human living, Christ fully declared God, he expressed God, he defined God, he explained God. And you could say he demystified God. God was a mystery, but Christ demystified God and made him very real and concrete and understandable. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul says that we know this God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you wanted to know what God is like, you need to look at Christ. You need to come to Christ. And then we put here Romans 8, 29. Now this verse says that we, the believers, 
that have been foreknown by him and predestinated by him are being conformed to the image of God's Son. So Christ is the image of the invisible God. But we are being conformed to his image. So in the same way that people got to see God and understand God by coming to Christ 2,000 years ago, now people can come to Nathaniel, to Will, to, and they can see Christ. You come to Christ to see God. You come to the believers to see Christ. You see? Of course, we're in a process. We're in a lengthy process. We're not fully conformed yet to that image. But praise the Lord. Every now and then, a little glimpse, and people see. They see Christ. So we get to participate in this image. Amen. So you could say that the image that Christ had, the image of the invisible God, is being magnified. It's being enlarged. It's being enhanced through us, through the church. So now, eventually, it's Christ and the church that will become the full manifestation and full representation of God. Amen. Okay, let's move on now to his crucifixion. Okay. After 33 and a half years, we know that Christ was crucified and died for our sins. But the view in the book of Colossians is much bigger. Yes, he died for my sins. But Colossians, look what Colossians says. Um, let's read Colossians 1.20. Go. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether the things on the earth or the things in the heavens. In Colossians, it says that he reconciled all things to himself. The things on the earth, the things in the heavens. Not just me, not just you, but all things. Because when Satan rebelled against God, when he fell, when that chief archangel fell... He polluted and damaged and corrupted the entire universe. So now the entire universe needs to be reconciled to God. But it happened on the cross when Christ was crucified. He reconciled all things to God. So you can see this is much bigger than just you and me, right? But here's what I want to leave you with on this point, And that is that if he can reconcile all creation... Surely, he can reconcile my inward being to the point that I have peace. If you go back to Colossians 1.20, circle that word peace. He made peace. In my inward being, you know, today uh, we meet so many young people who are full of anxiety, full of frustration, uh, full of all kinds of inward turmoil. But right here, all things were reconciled to God. All things. It's too marvelous. Okay, we're moving on quickly to resurrection. Uh, of course, we know he was buried. 
You know, Christ, um, <clears throat> he was killed, he was crucified as a malefactor by an evil government. And then Joseph of Arimathea donated his tomb, his own personal tomb, uh, and they laid the body of Jesus in that tomb, and they closed it up with a large stone, and he was there. And actually, a lot was happening while he was there in the tomb. It says he went down into Hades, and he proclaimed his victory um, to the spirits in prison, <laughs> right? We don't know exactly who, the, who those spirits were, but anyways, he was proclaiming his victory. Um, so he was very active there, and then he resurrected from the dead. Praise the Lord. He resurrected. And um, here, if you look at Colossians 1.18b... It says the firstborn from the dead, that he himself might have the first place in all things. And just to give a little more definition to that phrase, firstborn from the dead, let's read 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Go. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Firstborn from the dead means Christ has been raised from the dead. Praise the Lord. Um, so there was a tremendous struggle going on between death and life. These two great forces. On the one hand, there's death. You know, Satan, uh, everything that he is and represents is summed up in that word death. In the kingdom of darkness. Um, but life. That, that one word summarizes everything that God is. He is life. You know, um, in John chapter 1, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the, Lord. the darkness did not overcome. He resurrected from the dead. Amen. The conflict there, at the tomb was who is stronger? Death or life? Death or life? Uh, Isaac, you have life, right? You have the human life. Is that really life? You know, a day is coming. If the Lord doesn't come first, the day is coming when eventually your life is going to run out. Death won. So the human life isn't really life. If it was really life, it would just keep living. <laughs> but what happened here? There was a struggle. There was a battle between death and life. And this life, which traces its source all the way back to here, this life won. Amen. That life is really life. That's the life we want to lay hold of. Amen. This whole weekend, we want to lay hold on eternal life. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. There's a wonderful hymn by Charles Wesley. Up from the grave he arose. In a mighty triumph over his foes. Praise the Lord. Amen. Well, the next verse here, 1 Corinthians 15, 17. Let's read this. And if Christ has not been raised, 
Your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Oh, did you see that? You're still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, you're still in your sins. Even though he died on the cross, uh, that doesn't mean anything. Whatever he did, whatever he said, it doesn't mean anything if he just remained here. Right? But he is God. He is God. Jesus Christ is God. And he rose from the dead. Up from the grave, he arose. The, you know, the Christian faith means that we know someone who is a living one. He's a living one. The Christian faith is not just a bunch of teachings and doctrines and we embrace the teachings of Jesus and we follow the teachings of Jesus. No, we know a living one. We testify of a living one. When you read in the book of Acts, when the apostles were going forth, the disciples, and they were preaching the gospel, the key matter that they emphasized in their gospel preaching was the resurrection of Christ. He rose from the dead. This one that you crucified, God has raised. Amen. And, uh, you know, we have a couple more verses here from 1 Corinthians 15. Because 1 Corinthians 15, the entire chapter is on resurrection. The resurrection of Christ and also the resurrection of the believers and even the resurrection of the unbelievers. Eventually, there's going to be a, a great resurrection. <laughs> if you're a believer and you pass away before the Lord come, comes back, you're going to be resurrected and meet Him and have to render an account at His throne. At the judgment seat of Christ, we will have to render an account. If you're an unbeliever, then you're, you will be resurrected at the end of the great tribulation, uh, sorry, the end of the millennial kingdom and stand before God at the, at the great white throne of judgment and have to render an account. So, in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, it says, Do not be deceived. Evil companionships corrupt good morals. It's, it's so interesting. Why is this verse sandwiched in all these verses, the whole chapter on resurrection? Do not be deceived. Evil companionships corrupt good morals. What are evil companionships? Evil companionships are companionships with people that don't believe in the resurrection. People that don't believe that they're going to be accountable one day. And if you don't believe that you're going to be accountable for your actions and for what you do, then the next verse says, we might as well just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And that's what people do. They just live as if this is the only life and they're not going to be accountable. And so their morality is degraded. They just do whatever they want. If it feels good, just do it. And if you hang around those kind of people, it says here, your, your morals will be corrupted, right? Evil companionships corrupt good morals. Anyways, that's just a little side point. That we are believers in the resurrection, right? We believe in the resurrection. Christ resurrected and he's resurrecting us. Now, when he resurrected, in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, it says, let's read this together. 
The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. He resurrected in a new form. He went into the grave in one form, but he came out in a whole new form. When you, and, and this is an illustration that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, when you put a seed in the ground, it goes in in one form. Maybe a little brown thing. But after a few days, it comes out in resurrection in a new form. And how did Christ come out of the grave? It says he became a life-giving spirit. So now he can give life. He came to his disciples on the day of his resurrection, and he breathed into them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit, which was just himself in resurrection. Available now. Available to whoever would breathe him in. You don't have to go climb a high mountain or do some uh, fancy act. You just have to breathe him in. Oh, Lord Jesus. He breathed out, we breathe in, and we get the resurrected Christ. Amen. Well, let's move on. Roman numeral 5 is on the ascension of Christ. The ascension of Christ. Uh, Colossians 2.15. Let's go. Stripping off the rulers and the authorities, he made a display of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Colossians doesn't use the word ascension, but you just consider this scene. There he is, stripping off the rulers and authorities. You know, the ascension of Christ is something that happened 40 days after his resurrection. Actually, and some of you know this, he ascended privately to the Father uh, on the day of his resurrection. Because he told, he told Mary, right, who met him at the tomb, and he said, don't touch me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But then, later that evening, all the disciples were gathered in the upper room. And he was there eating, eating with them. And, and then eight days later, he told Thomas, doubting Thomas, he said, Come, touch, touch me. Touch the nail prints. You don't believe? Uh, come and touch me. So he had already ascended privately to the Father. But then 40 days later, he ascended publicly. And in 1 Corinthians 15, it says there were more than 500 witnesses that saw his public ascension. And we put this verse, Acts 1.9 here. When he had said these things, while they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him away from their sight. This is his ascension. But during those 40 days before his public ascension, he was there training his disciples to know his, his invisible presence because now he's the life-giving spirit and he would appear, he would disappear and they were getting to know that even though he disappeared, he's still there. He said, I will be with you all the days until the consummation. So he was training them, he was teaching them more. Um, then he ascended and the point that we want to make here is that, okay, at the time of the resurrection, the struggle was between life and death. Uh, that was the struggle going on at the tomb. But in ascension, there was a great struggle for authority. Authority. 
Write that word down. I, I want to help you like that word authority tonight. There was a struggle for authority. So, you know, Satan, he had to keep Christ earthbound. He had to keep him earthbound. There was some kind of a war in the unseen realm. And in Colossians 2.15, we read it. It says he's just stripped off the rulers and authorities. So listen, if he is stripping off rulers and authorities, doesn't that imply that they were there clinging to him? If he was stripping them off, they were clinging to him. They were trying to keep him earthbound. This man cannot ascend. If he ascends to the right hand of the majesty on high, that's big trouble for the kingdom of darkness. So, so all the authorities from the kingdom of darkness were called together. They were summoned to do everything they could to prevent Christ from ascending. Um, but you know what? It was probably just a, a walk in the park, Nathaniel. <laughs> it just says he stripped them off, making a display of them openly. He just stripped them off. And then look at this next verse, Ephesians 1.20. Let's read this together. Which he caused to operate in Christ in raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavenlies. He was seated in the heavenlies. He was enthroned. He was enthroned at the right hand of the majesty on high. And the verse we have here for enthronement is Colossians 1.18. It says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He was not the head until he ascended and was given authority. So that's why this verse points to his ascension. And then look at Acts 2.36. Let's all read this together. Go. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Now, when he was on the earth, he was Lord and he was Christ. But unofficially. But when he ascended... He was officially made Lord in Christ. It's similar to the way we carry out our, our elections here in the United States. The president is elected in November, but it's not until the inauguration day in January that he is officially made president of the United States of America. Well, in the same way, Christ was already Lord, he was already Christ. But when he ascended, he was made both Lord and Christ. He was made Lord to possess all. And he was made Christ, God's anointed, to carry out God's commission. And that's what he's doing today. Carrying out God's commission as the ascended, resurrected Lord and Christ. Amen. Uh, <clears throat> okay, now, I want to skip over some of these verses just for time's sake. And focus on this word authority, like I mentioned. I feel that this generation has a little trouble with the word authority. <laughs> I, I have some kids your age, and I know. Um, even there's kind of a slogan in society today, question authority. 
And sometimes you see in the news, you see even Christians marching and, and uh, opposing authority, opposing authorities, and ending up in jail and so forth. Uh, this is a serious matter. You know, if there was no authority, then there would just be anarchy and chaos, and the whole thing would begin to unwind. So authority is very crucial. And anyone that has authority should be someone who's under authority, and all authority comes from God, and all the earthly authorities are just temporary anyway. But I want to give you some appreciation of the authority of Christ and what authority he has and what his authority is. Um, okay, number one, he has authority to forgive sins. Christ has the authority to forgive sins because he is God. If he had not been resurrected, then it says we're still in our sins, but he resurrected. So, and he has the authority to forgive our sins. He actually said that in Mark chapter 2. He said, so that you will know that I have authority to forgive sins to the paralytic, he said, arise. Number two, he has authority to give eternal life. He is the life giver. He said, I am the life. So he has the authority to give life. He is life. But according to the Father's plan, he has to dispense that life. And it takes authority to give life. In John 17, he said he has the authority to give life. Number three, he has authority to conform us to his image. Isn't that wonderful? He, it takes authority to do that, and he has the authority to conform us to the very image of Christ. You know, he dispensed his life into us, so we have his life. But that life is now conforming us. It's shaping us into the image of Christ. And we have to believe and trust in that shaping power. Amen. Okay, number four. He has the authority to make you a constituent of the new Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, this point is mind-boggling to make you a constituent of the New Jerusalem. You know, the entire Bible ends with the New Jerusalem. That's the consummation of all of God's work throughout time. The New Jerusalem, the eternal counterpart of Christ, the eternal dwelling place of God, and you get to be a constituent of that. This, this is the high hope that we have. You know, some people... Even Christians, they, they have such a hope in the present life, the, pre the life you're living now on the earth. They hunger for the human life. They want to get the most out of the human life because they don't have such a high expectation for the future, the future life. So in this life, they're very ambitious uh, they feel that this life has so much to offer, and they're scared that they don't have much in the next life. So they're just going for the present life, trying to gain as much as they can from the present life, to enjoy the present life so much. But brothers and sisters, we have so much hope for the future. 
the Lord as the ascended Christ who has been enthroned at the right hand of the Father. This is a throne here. Has the authority to constitute us and make us a constituent of the new Jerusalem. Okay, now number five, and this is the last point on authority that I want to give you. He has authority to arrange all outward things. All outward things. There's a verse there on your sheet, <clears throat> Revelation 1.5. It says that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Well, that includes big things. All the nations. It includes the world leaders. It includes the, uh, the timing of all the big happenings on the earth. Um, He's arranging all these, these outward big things, setting the stage for the end times when Christ will come back and set up his kingdom on the earth and take possession of the earth. But if he can arrange all the big things, then surely he has authority to arrange in all the small things in our daily life. Malik, all the small things in your daily life, he can arrange. He is arranging. He has the authority to arrange. He's arranging all those small things in your daily life so that he can forgive your sins, so that he can dispense life into you, so that he can conform you to the image of the firstborn son of God and constitute you to eventually become a member, a constituent of the new Jerusalem. He has to work in our daily life. All the little details you know, there's a verse where the Lord says, don't be anxious about anything because the hairs on your head have been numbered. How small is that? <laughs> you don't, I bet, Johnny, I bet you don't even know how many hairs are on your head. But God does. He's counted them all. He already knows. He's arranging everything. In Matthew 6, it says a sparrow doesn't fall out of the sky without God's notice. He's arranging every little detail in our human life um, so that he can dispense his life and conform us to his image. You know, just a little story. I got a few minutes left. Uh, just a few weeks ago, I was driving my car up to North Austin to have lunch with a brother. And as soon as I pulled into the Chick-fil-A, smoke and steam start coming out from under my hood. And Reese, I lifted up the hood and there's the radiator. The, the radiator blew up. And, but not, not only that, Reese, there's gooey, slimy stuff oozing out of the radiator. And I'm just standing there looking at this and I'm just saying to myself, oh no, oh no. Anyways. So I just, I closed the hood, I went into the Chick-fil-A, got my sandwich, waiting for the brother to come. <laughs> the brother shows up, we have some fellowship. But anyways, while we're fellowshipping, it dawns on me, wait a minute, I pay $11 every six months to have roadside assistance. So I can call this number and a tow truck will come and tow my car wherever I want it. So as soon as the brother left, I called the tow truck, and they said, all right, we'll be there in 45 minutes. All right. 
So I'm just taking my time, having some prayer, reading the word. Finally, the tow truck shows up. And uh, we push the car into a certain angle so he can back up the tow truck and get the, get the car on there okay. And then he hops out of his tow truck and he shows me his cell phone. He says, look, the, the police just texted me. I have to go. There's an accident up here on I-35. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> he said, don't worry. I'll send another one. So about 30 minutes later, another tow truck comes. And uh, anyways, this is a young guy. He looked like he was in his 20s. And he looked like he was from the Middle East. Anyways, he, he backs up the tow truck. We get it loaded. I hop in the front seat and uh, give him directions. And then he just cranks the, the radio on full blast. And it's this Arabic music and, and talking and so forth in Arabic. And I was like, oh, Lord. And then, uh, <coughs> but then, yeah, Nick, I was saying, oh, no, oh, no. But my oh, no got changed. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. Here's a young guy from the Middle East. He needs to know you. Oh, Lord. So I'm just considering, how am I going to say something? He's got the music on full blast. And so I just holler over to him. I said, how long have you been driving tow trucks? Because <laughs> he, he looked pretty young. So he turned the music down, told me he'd been driving tow trucks for four months. He had just moved from California, from San Diego. And before that, he was in Iraq. He grew up in Iraq. And, uh, okay. So uh, he's telling me about himself. His girlfriend left him. And I learned a, a bunch of stuff. Just having a conversation. It was a long ride. <laughs> but then, then I turned the conversation. And started telling him what I do. And how I meet with college students at the University of Texas. And I said, you know, young people these days, they need a lot of direction. They're making big decisions about the rest of their life. And, and the decisions they make today is, is going to affect their future. And, uh, and I like to share with them about, about God and about Christ and God's purpose for your life. And how you were made in the image of God to be filled with God. And I'm just going on like this. And then he asked a question. He said, if, if Jesus Christ is God, how come he's the son of God? So we have, I had to talk some more, get into it. And then right before we get to the destination, he asked me this question, Reese. He said, what do you think about the Muslims? Are they good or bad? And I realized, right at that moment, I realized what I say is going to affect whether this person gets life dispensed into him or whether he gets turned off and rejects life. And so I said, well, I wouldn't talk about it in terms of good and bad, but in terms of law versus life. And Jesus Christ is the life, and he wants to dispense his life into you. And I just began to share the gospel just a little bit because we, were, we got to the destination, and and he was in a hurry. And, but anyways, I was so thankful that I had the opportunity to share the gospel with this person from Iraq. And right before he left, I was able to give him a gospel tract. The mystery of human life. 
you should carry some of these in your pocket just to have them on hand. You never know. Because, because this one here, who is in ascension, has the authority to give life. And he has the authority to conform us to his image. And he arranged. Could you believe, Nick, that he arranged? That this one right here. He arranged by his authority that my car radiator would blow up on the way to Chick-fil-A. <laughs> and he arranged that the first tow truck driver would, would drive away. And I'd have to wait another 30 minutes for another tow truck driver. So that this young man from Iraq could hear the gospel. It may have been the only opportunity that he ever had in his whole life to hear the gospel. But this one arranged it. He has the authority to arrange in all the details of our daily life. So the next time you say, oh no, think about, oh Lord, what do you have in, in store for this? What do you have in store for this moment, Lord? There must be something. You're arranging. You're the arranger in the universe, arranging all things so that you can carry out your purpose. You can carry out God's commission. You can forgive sins. You can dispense life. You can conform us more. I believe, and I prayed for that young man. You know, maybe no one on the face of the earth had ever offered up one prayer for his salvation. But the Lord arranged this so that I could meet him, so that I could have that interaction with him and eventually share the gospel and pray for his salvation. You see? Praise the Lord for the ascended Lord. Okay, the last point on here, and then we have to end, is the descension of Christ. And if you look, okay, we need to read this verse together. Go. To whom God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is where it all ends. It starts here with God, the invisible, mysterious, hidden God whom no man can approach. No man has ever seen. But now, after he ascended, he was poured out as the Spirit upon all flesh. And he can come right inside our spirit, the deepest part of our being. And Christ in you is now the hope of glory. Uh, of all the verses back here, I'm not going to read them all. We don't have time. But I want you to circle 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Let's read this one together. Go. For also in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and were all given to drink one spirit. Praise the Lord. So right here, it becomes just a drink. We were all given to drink one spirit. Starts here as the invisible God, but now we can drink him. And the easiest way to drink is just to call, Oh, Lord Jesus. And, oh, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. God has been reduced to a drink. Praise the Lord. This is the process of Christ. This is the, pro this is the Christian faith, which is the economy of God. And now we can drink him. And brothers and sisters, this weekend, we don't want to waste this process, but we want to do a lot of drinking. Drinking in the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Okay, I'm done here. And uh, I think we have some time for some, some overflow. If you all want to share anything you enjoyed from this word from Colossians.